Welcome to the Grip City Golf Podcast, your source for new information, insightful interviews, and good old-fashioned banter about golf in Portland, Oregon. Today's episode is presented by Brink and Brown Sanitation. Introducing the hosts of Grip City Golf, Andy Dirt Johnson and Eric Peterson. Hey, what's happening, everybody? Welcome in episode seven of the Grip City Golf Podcast. Andy Dirt Johnson, Eric Peterson hanging out with you. We're doing something a little new, a little wonky this time, but at least we can still see each other. We are doing this one live. You were looking live on Zoom. What's happening, Eric? What's up, man? Good to see your face virtually. You look just as good as in person, I must say. Hey, I, you know what I should have done? I should have rocked my tour visor for this because you can see it. And that you know, I'm, I'm like breaking it in one person at a time. I wear it in front of nobody. And then you could be one. And then like All a right. foursome could be next. I'm just like, it's step by step with me with the you, tour visor. You sound like a high school girl getting ready for prom. It's like, dude, you look great. Just go out and have fun. Stop, stop thinking about it. The more you think about it, the worse it gets. That is true. I'm very self-conscious. So if this episode uh, sounds terrible, tweet us at Grip City Golf. We're not sure how the audio quality is going to sound, but hey, we're in the trust tree. We're trying this stuff out. We had somebody that tweeted us, and I want to shout him out because it was a, it was, a, it was a nice tweet to get because we put a lot of time and effort into it. And it was from Jeff, and he said that he's enjoying the show and the quality of the production is much appreciated. And so the first episode after we get that tweet, we're trying one on Zoom and we have no clue how this is going to go. So if it's terrible, just let us know. And Jeff, well, maybe Jeff's standards for podcasts are a little low because that's pretty nice of him to say that. What All we do, man, and this is all you, is just like plug in and start talking. And it just so happens that you have studio hookups to make us sound a little bit better. But I mean, thank you to Jeff for the nice comments. Well, and how about a shout out quickly too for our listeners. So this, this episode is going to be out uh, for those who listen on a timely basis. I know some people listen later on Thursday, uh, May 26th is when we're, we're recording this. And I want to give a shout out to one Eric Peterson, who is going to be a radio star tomorrow from <laughs> noon to three on 1080 The Fan, dude. You're jumping into the radio business. So th- thank you. Um, I don't really know what to, what to think of it other than that I'm humbled and, and surprised, to be honest with you. When I was in the studio for uh, our conversation with Brian Henninger, Dusty walked in, Dusty Hera, and um, I'd never met him. So I didn't know who he was. I, like, I thought he was walking in to like, ask me for my ID because I'm an unauthorized guest of the, of the studio. And we just started talking and, and um, he asked me to be on his show on Friday with Dusty and friends. So I get to be his friend on Friday. You're going to be a friend for three hours. So everybody, if you're listening to this in time, make sure to tune in on Friday from noon to three. You can hear Eric Peterson uh, talk about his, his time in the golf game. And I'm sure make fun of me for not being comfortable wearing a tour <laughs> visor. It's going to be great. So tune in from noon to three. And how much does Dusty play golf? Is he, is he big into it? I've golfed with Dusty one time and he strikes me as like a, he's got a couple of kids plays maybe five times a year kind of guy. Yeah. But a good athlete, he's, he's got a good swing. I think he said he played in high school. He went to, is it Westview? Or, uh, he was, yeah, I think he was a Glencoe kid. Yeah. Glencoe. There you go. Yeah. That sounds right. Yeah. So he's been around golf for a while and, and I know he does a great job on his show, just covering sports in general, which I, I am always impressed by you guys. You're able to talk so broadly about so many different sports. And here I am like trying to have a point of view on just golf, but Dusty seems like he's obviously got his head on straight with sports in general, but then also with golf as well. So I'm excited to talk with him. It'll be fun. It should be cool. So noon to three on 1080, the fan, make sure to listen to that tomorrow. And this is obviously the week after we got a lot to get to on this episode. And we'll set that up in a moment. Eric mentioned Brian Henninger coming up. So we'll we'll tease that in a second. But 
we got to start with the PGA championship and the week after that. I mean, it went from, and I, you know, I don't know how you feel about this, Eric, but I always have mixed emotions on majors where I think it's cool when you have the ability for a guy that nobody has ever heard of to win a major championship, like golf is kind of unique in that way. And so part of me as a golf fan appreciates that and respects that like this is life-changing for this guy to have an opportunity but for the general quote-unquote sports fan it's not a huge deal because hey i who is this guy i've never heard of him i don't know his backstory so you went from feeling like that was going to happen as a runaway freight train on sunday to that lead flip-flopping multiple times and then ending up in a playoff and one of the biggest names on the entire pga tour and justin thomas winning what did you make of the PGA finish and how it all went down in Southern Hills this weekend? Yeah, man, like per- Mito, um, he was so impressive all week and how consistent he was. And he actually held the lead for most of the day on Sunday. I mean, like, like credit to him, like he held it together. I think that a lot of people probably wondered going into Sunday if he was going to be able to hold it together. And when he did hold it together through 16, 17 holes, you're like, my gosh, like this is going to happen. I mean, sometimes when you see the underdog, um, going into Sunday, they kind of fade away on Sunday, especially when there's some big time players behind him. But the fact that he kept it together until the very end was was really fun to watch. And like, I just hope that he's able to come back from this because it's like the closer you get to victory, especially at that scale, the harder it is to get over losing it. Right. I mean, if he had made double on the first you know, few holes or whatever and gave up his lead and kind of just fizzled away and wasn't really any part of the story coming down to the end, that would have been one thing. And maybe he's like, well, I just need to play better on Sunday and I'll be I'll be back. But the fact that he was that close and it really just came down to that one shot on 18 that that mm-hmm. did him in. It's just like I hope that he can come back from that. That was my big takeaway. It was, it was the tee shot on 18, which you, I can't even imagine. Like, you know, I get nervous over four foot par putts, right. To save yeah. on a round that I'm already eight over par. And this dude's got, he just needs to hit one fairway on 18. And he has that kind of sawed off finish. It goes into the hazard, but then even on top of that, to find yourself up next to the green and then he chips it, you know, over the hole or, you know, basically to the back end of the green. And all he needed was a bogey. He could have say bogey, and ended up in the playoff with JT and Zalatoris. Like, to be that close, I'm with you, man. I can't even imagine the emotions that are at play there. And and I think it, it was pretty telling to me his personality and the way he's going to handle this by walking out and immediately doing the national TV interview. Like, as the playoffs going on or wrapping up, I can't remember specifically when it happened. But to go face the music like that, like, there's some golfers that after a rough round refuse to talk to the media. They'll just they, just run, away. they just run away. Like, I'm out. I don't want to face the music yeah. here. And for him to go do, like, a national interview on CBS and talk about what he was going through and what he was thinking, I, that, that told me a lot about his character and, and where his future is going to go. And for the golf world, I think you're – extremely happy that it, the playoff ended up being Zalatoris who outside of his figure eight short putting backstroke is, <laughs> you know, an incredibly fun golfer to watch. Yeah. And then Justin Thomas, who is one of those guys that's in that category, you know, with what DJ with uh, John Rom with some of these guys you look at, you're like, how does he only have one major? He's such a good player and he's so yeah. consistent. And for him to win the way he did the stretch that he played on the back nine to not only put himself in contention, but then, to basically birdie two of the three playoff holes and he just didn't birdie 18 because he was playing it safe. I, it was one of the more, whenever you have a collapse and a rise, it's always, you know, multi-parts, you know, Mito has to mess up on 18 
and Zalatoris has to not play perfect in the playoff. But for JT, he he captured that and and really put the pressure on those guys atop the leaderboard. That was some of the most impressive golf under pressure that I, I think I've ever seen from JT down the stretch. It seems to me like JT has that extra gear. You know, you talk about in, in any sport, like right, like the players that separate themselves from pretty good slash um, I wouldn't even say really good from like the greats, the truly greats, right. Are those players or those athletes who can just click into the next gear up. And I remember seeing JT on 18, he smoked a tee shot down there, just couldn't have been in any better position. Mm -hmm. He stands over the next shot and just hits a perfect approach up in there. I mean, like, it's almost like you could see it in his eyes that he's like, I am going to freaking win this tournament. And that putty hit on 18, the 72nd hole, he just hit it a fraction too hard. Otherwise that would have gone in too. Like he just looked like he was built for a moment like that. And then when you contrast that with Mito kind of in that same exact setting, where okay 18th tee like he knows exactly what he needs to do to win and he just didn't have that next gear and a lot of that comes from experience a lot of that comes from just the blood that's flowing through your veins there's several factors that go into to that but I mean it, it's just like I'm not surprised that JT did that but it's still like just seeing him actually carry out what you thought that he was going to do is still really really impressive. I thought there were two things too from his win that we can relate to our listeners and our golf games that I, you know, were, were incredibly fitting. So he tweeted and joked that early in his round on Sunday, he hosel rocketed a five iron and he was, Which like, was a legit hosel rocket. Like sometimes <laughs> players will say like, Oh, I shanked that. And that's like, no dude, you just caught that off the heel. And it wasn't really a shank, but that was a straight up like hosel rocket <laughs> to go from that on the front nine <laughs> to then the way he played down the stretch. And then the other note was, and I love this from his caddy bones. He said that bones after the round on Saturday, because remember JT went 67, 67 and everybody thought, man, he's probably going to be might win this thing. And then just played horribly on Saturday and he was on the range after his round. And he said that Bones sat him down and was like, dude, you got to stop being so hard on yourself. Like you're a top 10 player in the world. You're in contention literally every single weekend. Like you just stop. You're not going to be perfect. Nobody's yeah. going to be perfect on the golf course. And it, it kind of when I read those quotes and saw what he was saying, it was funny that I think you can take those and connect them to the average golfer of your round's not going to be perfect. You're going to hit bad shots whether it's a hosel rocket or a quick duck hook or just one that you top 15 yards, like you're going to have those shots in your round. Even the guy that won the PGA championship did then yeah. stop being so hard on yourself. It's amazing how that kind of meant that positive mentality that we've talked about people having that is a lot easier said than done. I grant you that, but it's amazing that even the guy that just won the biggest tournament that's going on in the world of golf had to have that mindset of like, dude, I just need to be positive and stop trying to be so perfect. And, he ended up winning the damn tournament. Yeah. I mean, it's a good reminder and that can apply to any sport that sometimes the, the more you think about it, the more pressure you put on yourself, the worse you perform, which is the opposite of what you want. But sometimes your brain can't resist the temptation to be hard on yourself. And I think golf is such a mental game more so than, than other sports that, man, if you start overthinking stuff, it can really screw up your performance out on the field or the course in this case. So. Yeah, the, the mental aspect of it. It's always a grind, but it was fun, man. The PGA going to a playoffs, Alatoris and JT. You can't ask for anything more than that. And it should be noted, too, for those of you who followed, uh, Netflix is coming out with their PGA Tour, basically, series that's similar to the F1 series that has become so popular and driven the ratings of F1 racing. And they, they noted that, and I, it was a golf reporter, I think, had this story. 
that they follow a couple of golfers every single week more closely than others. And for the PGA championship, they picked just randomly last week, Justin Thomas, because you got to have a, a blue chip stock in there, right? Let's follow one of the faces of the sport. Let's find a long shot. Oh, how about Mito Pereira? They follow him for the entire weekend. And then Matt Fitzpatrick, who's kind of an under the radar guy that was all of a sudden in contention as a young uh, golfer this weekend. So like, talk about the dream scenario for Netflix. And I think it's going to be out. I'll have to look it up. And if listeners might know this, I think it's coming out next September, October, November, somewhere in that range where they basically finish the season, the PGA tour year, edit it all, and then put it all out at once. And, but that's one that I think we're going to look back on and look at those three names and, and just see what their weeks were like for Mito and no namer for JT after his round on Saturday, there's going to be some great stuff that comes out of that. Yeah. And like, I mean, that show has created so much buzz that it's, it sucks that we have to wait until like next fall in order to see it. <laughs> Cause it's so fresh in my mind. Now I want to know right. what they were doing, what they were thinking at the PGA, like right now, the fact that they hit on that is, I don't know, like Vegas odds wise of, of that happening, <laughs> but like, that's pretty crazy that they, they set it up that way. So the PGA was great. Last one for you. Should Tiger Woods start driving a cart? Probably. Yeah. Um, will he be allowed? Obviously no. Um, Cause John Daly's around to cruise. He's allowed to cruise around in a cart. Well, champions tour is a different deal but, Yeah. Um, on the PGA tour. I just, I don't know, man. I saw him like when he made the cut, but you just see him limping really hard. And it's, I don't want to say it's hard to watch because it's, it's amazing that he's, he's even performing at that level, but right. you kind of are, you're just feeling like, I hope that he's enjoying the game and enjoying performing uh, because it looks painful. And I, and obviously his history of success is like the bar is so high for what we expect him to do when he takes, when he takes it out there. Like the fact that he's not quite there and he's just, he, he looks like he's wincing. Like it's just, I feel bad for him kind of. Yeah. There's kind of mixed emotions where you're, you feel bad. It seems painful. And then you also remind yourself that there were a lot of great golfers that didn't make the cut and he made the cut. Like that's the weird trade-off for me. Like Saturday was ugly and he withdrew and obviously didn't play on Sunday. And it, there was a couple of moments where he just winced and stepped awkwardly on his leg. And you're like, dude, what are you doing? Yeah. And I'm like, well, he shot a one under 69 on Friday and made the cut. Like it's just this weird trade-off where he's, he clearly can still have it in spurts, but it's the notion of maybe it's the cold weather. It was really cold there on Saturday and remember at Augusta on Saturday the weather was terrible and he blew yeah. up so maybe that's part of it but the game is there in spurts it's just does he have the I don't know I guess stamina and strength to last four days throughout an entire tournament totally there was a tweet to your comment about some of the people who didn't even make the cut that are perfectly healthy somebody tweeted Tiger who was in a wheelchair this time last year made the cut at the first two majors of the year here's a list of golfers who did not make the cut in both of the first two majors eight of the current top 18 in the world, Xander, Kepka, Spieth, Burns, Scheffler, Cantlay, DJ, Sergio, Berger, and Ushazen. Those guys like made the cut in one or the other, but not both of the masters and the PGA, but mm -hmm. Tiger did. Isn't that crazy on, on one leg and it looks like he can't hardly walk and he made the cut in both tournaments. So we'll see where he goes from here. The U S open coming up next month. It seems like he's only playing majors. And that's the other tough part about competing is just 
you, you just you have to be in the mix kind of week in and week out and get your mind into that competition mode coming and showing up four times a year. It's nearly impossible to do, but at least he made the cut and Saturday was a little painful to watch. Well, yeah. we're going to get to uh, Eric came up with an idea and it kind of ties into a listener question that we're going to get to to close out the episode this week. And that is your base, your, your YOLO golf trips like we live in, as we've highlighted, such a golf mecca of Central Oregon, Bandon Dunes, Seattle, the Oregon coast, like a million places you can go golf. And so kind of your YOLO day trip for the Portland golfer where you can wake up in the morning, drive. We highlighted this with uh, Matt and last week on Chambers Bay, make it in a day, turn around and and come back. So uh, we're going to get to that coming up in a bit and uh, we'll kind of recap, you know, everything else that's going on. We'll get to the listener questions that I forgot to get to last week. So if you ask a question, I apologize. I promise you we'll get to those coming up in a moment. Uh, But first up in the main meat of this episode, uh, last week we had the chance to catch up with Brian Henninger and Amy Simonton. And for those of you who don't know who they are, they're the partners out at the golf farm, which is this huge, you know, state-of-the-art indoor golf facility out in Tualatin. And Henninger is probably a name that I think people know. He, he was the, the, the leader or co-leader of the you know, through 54 holes at the 1995 Masters, a guy that, you know, was born in Sacramento, but moved up here and has been a kind of staple in the golf scene in this area. But uh, you, you reached out, you made this happen, and, and he's got an incredible golf story that uh, I, I think is one that maybe doesn't get enough attention around this area. What do you think about that? Did he get yeah, this? dude. I, I mean, he's one of those guys from the Portland, Oregon area that most people know the name, at least as a player. And a lot of, a lot of that is because of what you said that he was the 54 hole leader at the 1995 masters. And just think about that. Like close your eyes and say that out loud. <laughs> a golfer that lives in Wilsonville, Oregon is leading the final round of the masters tournament. Like it's crazy, right? Um, so the story around that experience for him is is incredible. And he had a long professional playing career as well. So some of the stuff that gets talked about less, but still really impressive that someone that kind of came from, he wasn't even really like a hot junior player on the junior golf scene growing up. He was a tennis player, um, but transformed into one of the world's best golfers playing at the absolute highest level. So, yeah, so we in the 95 Masters thing, to your point, we asked him about that, of just what that was like to put your head on the pillow on a Saturday night in Augusta, Georgia, trying to get sleep, knowing I'm 18 holes away from putting on a green jacket. Like, talk about pressure. Dear God, man, I can't even imagine that. <laughs> so we set this up. Amy Simonton was great. The golf farm is a great facility. And uh, Brian Henninger, uh, here is our conversation. We caught up with them last week. So there's a few mentions of Southern Hills that you'll hear as the PGA was just just teeing off last week when we talked to both of them, but here's our interview uh, and enjoy this one with Brian Henninger and Amy Simonton. All right. So Brian, thanks so much for hopping on the grip city golf podcast. I mean, we got a million things we want to talk to you about and, you know, and from all the stuff that you're doing in the local area, your career and all that. I, on the top of my mind though, right now is the PGA championship and we're getting a chance to watch it at Southern Hills country club. And you played in, in the PGA Championship at Southern Hills Country Club in 1994. And I kind of wanted to start there with you. Of like, it was your first major. I'm just curious, what do you remember about that week? And <laughs> what do you remember about the course of playing, playing at Southern Hills? Uh, God, it's, it's, it's pretty much a blur now. I'm, I'm getting too old to remember all the specifics. <laughs> uh, I did play the U.S. Open there, too. I made the cut in, uh, at the PGA Championship um, that year. I mean, all the majors were kind of relatively new to me. I played in a few, of course, but uh, it's definitely a step up. Um, it always seems like you're preparing a little bit differently, whether you should be or not. But um, 
I remember the one thing, and I've told this story quite a bit. I remember seeing Phil Mickelson uh, maybe Tuesday evening or something, and he said, hey, let's play a practice round. Uh, what, and it was kind of one of those like uh, unclear things. What time you What time you want to meet? I don't know. I'll be on the putting green at like 9 o'clock. So I, I got there the next morning and was kind of waiting around. Phil wasn't showing up, and the starter came over and said, Mr. Henninger, would you like to play a quick nine holes with Mr. Floyd? And I said, oh, my gosh, i got to take advantage of this. He won. He won some major championship. It could have been the U.S. Open. I can't remember. And I thought, wow, this guy is going to probably tell me where to go, where not to go, all those kind of things. So I'll, I'll <laughs> grab some insight from Raymond Floyd, one of the all-time greats, right? Um, and he, for nine holes, whatever that took us, two and a half hours or whatever, he never said a word to me. It was one of the, <laughs> one of the bigger disappointments in my career. Uh, uh, yeah, it was, so so it's interesting that that's what comes to my head when I think of Southern Hills. But it's you know the ballpark is quite a bit bigger as I'm kind of watching on TV today. Um, I just saw a 510 yard par five, uh, Tiger par four, Tiger and the boys just finished that seventh hole the par or the eighth hole the par three that was like 249. Wow. Those are. Uh, They've built some new tee boxes there, so I don't think I'd want to participate right now. <laughs> hey, Brian, this is Eric. Thanks again for jumping on. It's fun to talk with you. And I, I loved hearing the stories about, you know, seeing a golf course now versus then and how much different the game is. And kind of in that vein of thinking back, going down memory lane, I, I wanted to, if you could, just go back to the the beginning. I know – um, you were born in Sacramento, right? I was just curious, like, at what point in your life uh, golf was introduced to you and who brought you into the game? Yeah, so it, it was – It was my dad was a, a really good tennis player, and that was kind of my focus as a child growing up. You know, I trained quite a bit, um, was very passionate about the game of tennis. Um, he was a golfer, too. And so there was always golf clubs around. He was always going to the golf course, and I, I found – it's somewhat interesting. I was pretty athletic. Um, we moved to Oregon. He got in the restaurant business and became a member at Eugene Country Club, where I would caddy in the summertime. And I'd go over and hit some balls. And pretty, I had a pretty athletic golf swing. And it was relatively easy, considering I had no background with it. Um, my senior year in high school, to just make it short, I was kind of sitting on the bench. Chris Miller was on the team at Sheldon High School as a freshman. I was a senior. He kind of took my spot after the football players came back. Um, so I, I sat on the pine a lot, considering what I wanted to do as my spring sport because I was pretty burned out on tennis. I'd been accepted to USC. Um, I was going to go walk on the tennis team, potentially. But I still had this interest in golf. You know, maybe maybe springtime will be the time that I kind of just – you know, go out for the golf team and see where it takes me. Fast forward a little bit. I won the state championship that year. Um, the coaches gave me a look at USC. Um, I was not capable um, or had the talent yet to really participate on that team in any shape, way, or form, really. But they kept me on the team. I was an All-American my last two years, having picked the range at Wilshire Country Club a few <laughs> evenings a night so I could just grab some balls and hit them. Um, Amy's sitting here. She gets bored of my stories, but she's heard them a lot. And then <laughs> after, after that, really, I had no, I had no aspiration or dream of playing golf 
as a career. Um, I was just in the pro. I truly was present tense all the time. I love the process of trying to get a little bit better at golf. And that led me to, you know, after I was finished talking to my great mentor, Randy Lyon, who, who has passed now, but he was the head coach at ASU for about 20 years. Um, he kind of said, you know, you, you might consider Europe. So I went over there and did the tour school there. I missed um, at the final stage in Spain, came back, took a job at La Quinta Hotel in Palm Springs, um, where I was just cleaning clubs after people came off the golf course and getting tips. I did that for about six months. And then I started kind of my mini tour career, which I was pretty good at, to be honest with you. But that's a that's a tough road. It's getting tougher. There's a lot more skill out there. There's a lot more um, interest in golf from you know, a younger perspective. Um, so back then, yeah, there was some talent, but I was, I was good. I pickpocket this, this tournament and made enough money to kind of survive. And then the, the Hogan tour back then, which is the equivalent of the corn Ferry, started to get, to kind of get grounded and, and, uh, get some traction. And I finally got on that and I got my tour card through there. I finished second on the money list and I guess 1992. And that gave me the opportunity to go pursue it on the PGA tour career. But at, as you asked the question, Eric, about, you know, how I got started and all that, I never really had this. And I, I try to talk to the kids because if you can kind of stay in the process, um, you know, you never know where you can, this game can take you. But if you fast forward and go, I'm going to play the PGA Tour and stuff, you know, that, you know there's a few, a few guys out there with that kind of skill to, to talk about that at a young age. But if you, if you keep trying to get better and you keep trying to kind of set goals for yourself, you might find yourself on the PGA tour and, and I did, and I made a career out of it. It was tough. I was a journeyman, you know, went back to tour school a lot um, and bounced around both tours late in my career. And then played five years on the champions tour from 50 to 55 and loved every second of it. I'd still be out there if I had status, but um, that's kind of, you know, as an overview of Brent Henninger's career. And then I started the golf farm um, after the champions tour. Yeah, and, and I want to talk to you and Amy about the, the golf farm because what you're doing and, and the kind of institution that that's become for golfers of all levels in this area is, is really cool. I'd be remiss, though, if I didn't ask, and I'm sure you've been asked about this a million times, so I'm, I'm sorry for asking about it again, uh, but no. the, the 1995 Masters, I mean, just what a top 10 finish in a tournament like that, what that meant to you, and for for a, like, for a slappy like me that's a nine handicap that just has fun with buddies <laughs> out on the course, like what, what yeah. is the emo- – you're laying your head on the pillow low at night with a 54 or I believe a share of the 54 hole lead like just what what is that for somebody who will never be in that position what what is that like and what was that week like for you at Augusta oh uh, yeah you're drawing back some like you know um some incredible moments in my career really but again as I refer back to the trajectory of golf for me was really really steep you know I played one year of high school golf I was a pretty good college player but definitely not you know one of the best, um, fought my way to the PGA Tour, won a tournament, and found myself in the lead at the Masters. Do I expect it at the time? Maybe not, but I saw myself. I loved it. Like, like that Saturday afternoon was the highlight of my career. Mm-hmm. You know, I had my family and friends and, and, and a couple of, of, of people that had supported me early in my professional career, and they were gathered there to kind of enjoy and celebrate me leading that tournament. Oh, it just gives me the chills right now thinking about it. But did I think I had the opportunity to have more um, success? Of course I did. I mean, I loved it. And uh, I didn't handle Sunday very good. Um, 
for a variety of reasons, just like you said. I don't think I slept very good that night. Mm. Everybody anticipated me winning. I was a pretty good closer. My game was in really good form. I'd just never been in that situation. And, you know, I probably felt like as I look back, it was kind of going to be me or Ben, really. You know, we're in the last group. Doesn't that mean that one of us is probably going to win the term? No, there was like so many great players. Greg Norman, Fred Couples, you know, Jay Hawes, all those amazing players that were just you know, played better than I did that day, Davis Love. But I, I do have great memories of it, and uh, it definitely is a conversation piece to this day, just like you asked me the question. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Hey, Other than that, I, I again, I, I move forward, and I I each day is precious to me, so I don't really, like, I don't look in the rearview mirror. I just, right now, I'm just trying to help and mentor you know, young people to get better at golf. That's so cool, Brian. And while we're still in the vein of, of your playing career, I wanted to mention something that we've talked about on previous podcasts is the Fred Meyer Challenge, which you played in for a number of years, and you actually won mm-hmm. it with Scott McCarron the last year that the yeah. tournament was conducted, which I, yeah. it's like, what a cool story for someone with ties to the Portland area to put the final stamp on that tournament. I just was hoping you could share kind of some of your memories of playing in that event over the years. Yeah, so Peter Jacobson was an amazing friend and mentor out there. You know what I mean? Especially when I first got out there, I was in Oregonian. He took me under his wing. He said, you know, like we'd sit down at lunch and he'd say, hey, you know what? Some of the most important opportunities you have are pro-ams. Treat the people really well. You never know where it might lead. You know, things like that. Peter was very generous that way and really respected the tour and had had an integrity about himself and the way he approached it and the – the opportunity that we had out there and to take full advantage of it. And I love Peter for that. So we're playing at the Castle Pines event. It was a Stableford event um, back in the day. And Paul Azinger had just been um, diagnosed with cancer. And he came over and he said, hey, Brian, I know it's short notice, but would you be interested in participating in the Fred Meyer Challenge? Now, I'm he again, Peter was one of those guys that said, hey, I'm building this golf course in West Lynn come be a member, you know, blah, blah, blah. And the Oregon golf club became my, you know, honing grounds for, you know, my participation on the tour. So Peter had so much to do with some of the, um, some of my success and the opportunity to play in the Fred Meyer challenge was amazing at home. Got to have my family and friends kind of observe me close up. Um, my first, it was funny. My, he goes, he goes something like, hey, do you mind playing with Lee Jansen? I said, hell no. I don't care who I play. I get to come home. I'll play with anybody. And um, I it was kind of funny because Lee Jansen at the time had either, I don't know if he'd won two U.S. Opens. He'd definitely won one. So, you know, I'm not an established player like that, those guys at all at the time. Yeah, I'm playing the PJ Tour, but I'm with all the, the top dogs. I mean, Peter brought everybody, including Jack and Arnie to the Fred Meyer challenge. It was amazing. And all the popularity and all the participation. And I, I think I made 10 birdies the first round with Lee Jansen and shot like 62 on my own ball. And we were leading. Wow. <laughs> so that's one of the fondest memories of playing the Fred Meyer challenge. And then I played it for eight years and then I got to play with my good friend, Scott McCarron. And um, we won the last event in 2000, I think it was. Yeah. We so have- it was Amazing. We've had a chance to talk to Peter about that too. We we miss an event like that in Portland. I know so many people that grew up in the area just have those fond memories of, of going to see just that that such elite level golf in, in the Portland area. We we desperately miss it. Did he ever give you a hard time, Peter? That is about you going to USC. Did he ever? Did he ever rib you about that? <laughs> 
know. I don't know. And you know what? Like, it, it's looking back too. I mean, I would. I grew up in Eugene. I, I'm still to this day a huge Duck fan. I mean, through and through. I'm, and it bothers the crap out of my mom because she's like, "Oh, it's the Trojans." You know what I mean? They're the coolest <laughs> thing. I'm like, "No, they are. The Ducks are. Yeah. And they always will be." I mean, I sat in those stands with my dad and watched a zero-zero game with Oregon State. I mean, that's hardcore. With about five thousand. <laughs> Horrible, exactly. So, yeah, the Fred Byrne Challenge was another gift to me, really, because, you know, if I hadn't grown up here and been, you know, a close uh, friend of Peter Jacobson, I wouldn't have had that opportunity. So cool. So, yeah. So I wanted to transition into the golf farm and bring Amy into the conversation as well. Thanks for jumping on as well, Amy. I know you're a huge part of what goes on there. And I, I guess b- before we um, just turn it over to both of you, Brian, I wanted to just ask how – your transition went from the champions tour into uh, teaching as your profession and sort of the next chapter in your life. Was it an idea you had in your mind? Was it something that started as a seed and then grew into the golf, the golf farm? I'm just curious how, how that all got started. You guys are making, you're, you're asking some amazing questions. So you're stimulating some thought. So let's, let's go back to um, the masters in 95. Now, I had been pretty much self-trained, self-coached, all those things, up until about that point. And right after that, so the expectation is big. And, you know, I always felt that burden a little bit, to be honest with you. A lot of, a lot of golfers do. I mean, we're watching Rory McIlroy, you know, I mean, one of the most gifted players. But I think he's, he feels it, too. Pretty humble guy, you know what I mean? And sometimes he can't live up to this expectation. And a lot of times I felt the same. But I didn't have... I didn't know much about swing. I didn't know much about technique. Um, I had a lot of friends that, you know, had their coaches and all that kind of stuff. And, and I kind of wish I had somebody, you know, and um, Peter, we'll, we'll talk about Peter again. He said after the masters um, said that his friend, Jim Hardy, who they were in um, design, designing golf course together. And, and Jim was this, you know, golf instructor guy that I didn't know mm-hmm. said, he thinks you've got one of the best swings ever not to let anybody touch it. But if you ever wanted somebody to kind of like support you, I think Jim would be a great advocate and he wouldn't ruin you. He'd just kind of support you. Cause I was afraid of it because I saw some of my friends, you know, they were like, they were like me, they were up and down all the time and they'd get confused by instruction. Back then it was pretty ambiguous. So I, it might've been a few years later, I start going down that rabbit hole. So I go to, Jim and I go to a few other guys and I ended up playing with, to, to be completely honest with you, I, 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 Tom sure was another guy that had won a PGA tour event was a David Ledbetter um, student. Um, I was bouncing between two tours. I ended up in like West Virginia at a nationwide tour event and Tom sure and I are paired together. And he's doing something that's so unorthodox. I've never, you know, I'm like, what, Tom, that's not your golf swing. I've seen your golf swing a lot. And that is not what I'm familiar with. And he absolutely never missed a shot for two days, leading this tournament with a pretty stacked field by 10 shots. I make the cut, but I'm so curious. I'm like, I've never seen, I've played with all the greats at this point. I'm like, I've never seen somebody that's got that such a tight pattern. He hit this tight draw every time. I'm like, I'm curious. Can we go to lunch? We go to lunch. He says, you got to meet these two guys. Your name's Mike and Andy. I go, wow. 
because what you're doing looks interesting. It doesn't look conventional or traditional, but I'm curious. He goes, I'll set it up. Fast forward six months, I see Tom Schur down at Wente Vineyard on another, in Pleasanton, another nationwide event. And I think one of those guys is with him. So he, and of course, we're on the putting green late afternoon. I'm, you know, I'm baffled by my golf technique right now. So I'm struggling mentally, emotionally. I don't think I've, I know what I'm doing. And I'm about ready to go up to this driving range that's up on top of this hill. And Tom sure goes, this Mike Bennett, um, you know, this is the guy I was talking about. Why don't you come up and hit a couple balls in front of him? I'm like, oh, God, tomorrow's Thursday. No, 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 no. I can't change my golf swing right now. This will be the biggest mess ever. So we're driving up in this van. They got it, I don't know, it's a quarter mile away or something. And Tom Schur's on the opposite side of Mike, and he's Mike's leaning forward on his phone or something. Tom's going, let him look at your swing. Let him look. Oh my God, I'm shaking my head. There's no way I'm doing this. So we get out of the van. Quick story. I, I tell this story a lot because this is the day that I got interested in the science and the physics and the geometry behind golf swing. And so he goes, he gets out instead of like, he knows that I'm not going to let Mike mess with me right now, but he goes, Hey, hit a couple shots for Brian. So Mike Bennett's kind of this rotund, you know, guy that grabs a three iron and it's kind of like sprinkling and it's about 50 degrees out and he hits two balls like Tiger Woods could hit two, three irons. I mean, they were identical. And I'm like, Holy moly, this guy can hit a ball. So that was how I kind of established my interest in golf technique and swing. Did it help my golf game? Probably not. But I did get vicious. So Amy, when I when I was 45 years old and pretty much like going to wait for the Champions Tour to arrive in five years, a dad called me and asked me, I know I'm talking a lot, but this is kind of where the golf farm kind of originated. I started coaching a little bit up at the Oregon golf club, some of the kids and they were having success. And then I kind of had a pool of about 20 and Amy became part of that, that team, if you will. And she was about on her way to go to UC Davis. And she was this highly talented athlete from Oregon that won the state tournament and the Oregon amateur. And she was really gifted, but she was the one that was most curious. And that was, uh, that was something that stimulated me even more. So in the meantime, I knew that she was, I was going to get to coach her. She was, she was going to be fun. She was going to be the guinea pig. She still is the guinea pig. Aren't you, Amy? <laughs> yeah. And she, we have learned. So that was kind of the beginning of me learning from a variety of people. And we still research and we still learn and we, tr- we have a lot more tools and we're more gifted with people. And when I was on the champions touring, knowing that I was probably going to end one day, I wanted to kind of build a facility where I could slow the process down and I could educate people and I could organize them differently than if you two guys went out and got a golf lesson from Joe Blow somewhere and he said, hold it like a bird. You're swinging too fast. I wanted to give people more. And then if they wanted to take it and go kind of really battle some neuromuscular patterns that were, you know, they're going to have to disrupt them. That's kind of what Amy and I do. And the kids are different because the kids, you just let them evolve, you know what I mean? And you're just around them enough. But it's the, it's the more adult population, which is really golf instruction. It's really tricky. And we're trying to get better at it. And aren't we, Amy? So enough of my story about golf instruction. But I got – I'm still so curious. I'm so baffled by it. It's so hard. It's, you know, so many – 
variables and tolerances in there and everybody's a little bit different and you're just trying to figure it out at the end of the day and i'm still trying to say i'll never figure it out but I, <laughs> none of us ever will. that's the beauty of golf right you're always chasing that perfection well and to bring amy and i mean amy as brian mentioned you yeah. you have a pretty good golf pedigree yourself so so your your golf background i'm curious to hear more about and then for those that that don't know that we have this great you know four thousand square foot state-of-the-art place just low you know right around the portland area uh you know your golf game first and and then tell me, like, what is the golf farm? For those who haven't heard about it or haven't been, uh, what is it that, that the golf farm uh, uh, provides? Yeah, for sure. Um, I went to Lake Oswego High School, and um, I won the state tournament, I think, my sophomore year in high school. And then um, played college golf at UC Davis, where, like, we had a lot of success there. And um, I won the Oregon Amateur twice. Um, and then turned professional, played a few years, kind of struggled, like, a little bit like with Brian's story where like, you know, you start kind of trying to understand things and you're sort of on this search to like figure it out. And, um, as I was struggling with professional golf, like, um, I spent a lot of time around Brian cause he was, he was kind of training to play the champions tour. And so we'd practice together and he'd send me to go learn from different people like across the country. And, um, I was always curious about like kind of how to get a little bit better at my own game, but, at the same time, I was learning a lot of things that I would kind of come back with and we would try it or we would try it with other kids that he coached and stuff. And um, when I was like when I was in high school, he had he had a bunch of kids he was coaching. It was a really fun atmosphere and um, environment like it was basically the best players in Oregon. We'll all kind of hang out on the range with Brian and um, toss ideas around. And so um, my parents at some point were like, you know what, this is, we're kind of done supporting this. So <laughs> I was forced to go figure out something else to do. And, um, I, I lucked out and I got this job down in San, um, San Francisco area teaching golf down there. And I had never taught a golf lesson before. So Brian kind of got me all ready to like, I had to give a clinic or something in my job interview. And yeah, I'd, it, it, just I'd be warming up. trial by fire. <laughs> I'd be warming up for a champion tour event and yeah. Amy would be, videos what do i do here what do i do here yeah so luckily i had some i was doing because i i had never done it before but um but kind of got my feet wet down there and um and our and he was still playing golf at the time so you know i always knew that i wanted to be back up in this area at some point so um we kind of brian unfortunately lost his status which you know i wish he was still playing golf because he still should be playing golf but um yeah, but then there'd be no golf farm <laughs> i know <laughs> true but uh um he still he still works on his game it's still there so hopefully maybe maybe we'll get a little comeback here soon but uh we uh we finally found the place to do it um the right spot to do it and um i think we had kind of talked about this vision of just doing something indoors where like you know we can just do kind of whatever we want here however we want to go about it you know we're kind of our own bosses in here which is nice it's our own space um you know which is also nice when you come in here you know you're not at a golf course you're not um, you know, another, nobody is around watching you, um, struggle or hit weird shots or anything. You're kind of in your own space here. And that's what we wanted to create, you know, like your own little bubble to kind of explore and learn. And, um, and, you know, obviously with our weather here, it's just nice to be in, <laughs> indoors and not affected by any, uh, rain or anything like that. So, um, so basically we have three track bands, which is, they're really cool, um, technology radar technology it gives you all the data you would ever 
need to know um, like, like for the even, golf. Even more data than some people even know what to do with. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's so advanced. Yeah, for sure. There's a few numbers that we kind of educate people on, but the rest is kind of for Brian and I to sort of just look at. Yeah, nerd but, out. Exactly, nerd out. Some people like to do that. Um, and then we get we get video, so there's kind of that feedback too, which is really helpful. And it's fun, the technology, the simulator golf. We'll get the kids playing golf getting competitive against each other we have a little gym area and a little putting green so it's it's really you know a training facility for people to come in and explore us to kind of supervise you know a lot of times it's not like you know we're not giving golf lessons every hour it's people come in here and spend some time and um, we supervise their practice a little bit and um, have conversation with them and then hopefully they go away they go on the course they try it out they test it out and then they this is their space to come back in and give us feedback on kind of how how that's going and um you know maybe some things they need to improve on amy i know brian kind of shared a little bit about his kind of the the psychology side of golf and i'm just curious your your approach to that and and sort of your approach to teaching in general how do you try to kind of position things from the beginning when you just maybe are getting to know someone what is it that you try to um try to impress upon them as to how they should approach their game if they're trying to just get better yeah, I've learned, I mean, I've learned so much from Brian. So, like, I, I would say that he and I come from a playing perspective. Like, the, the best thing about, like, the reason why I gravitated towards spending time around him was because he had been in my shoes, you know. So, people, whether it's your parents or your college coach or whoever it is, like, they're going to have their opinions and they're going to want to, like, fix this or do this or go see this person. But, like, Brian had stepped on the first tee with a lead or he struggled in a – you know, the last three holes of a round when he had the lead or whatever it was that like I was experiencing, like he had been in that situation. So um, that's kind of the perspective we come from as far as like the kids, like um, we, we know what they're going through. And so it's, it's a lot of it is just having discussions about um, golf, really how to manage your game. Um, Maybe how, you know, how to, the mental game right mental approach and all that kind of stuff too so that's kind of what the better players because we get a lot of those in here so it's really nice to have that's like a lot of times we work together and it's really nice to have somebody to kind of bounce ideas off of um because it is really hard especially with the good players that we get in here it's you you know the less you say is better sometimes and so um i've really learned that from him as far as like your average golfer adult um, you know, I've also kind of learned from him there too, is like, you really have to understand kind of what people are capable of and what they're not capable of. And so a lot of times we're just kind of maybe exploring things and then you kind of know like, okay, this guy does really well with this, doesn't do really well with this. Um, everybody's different. So you're never really going to teach somebody the same way. And so again, like, I'm very lucky that I have somebody that I can always ask questions to and, um, is really helpful and, and we have a really fun atmosphere in here where we work together with most people that come through here and so it's been a really fun learning experience for me and you know continue to do that every single day mm. do, you guys, yeah. do you guys ever disagree on on a path that a player should take like hey i think he should do this and brian says yeah i don't i don't know about that maybe you should try this or vice versa Does brian yeah need to yeah, plug we, his ears? yeah no 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 <laughs> Awesome. Well, yeah, you are amazing because you're you guys are golfers, so I can tell you're thinking right now. Um, <laughs> it's the yin yin and yang thing. Yeah, there's a little bit of back and forth. So there would be like, let's say there's three people on the golf farm. There might be like 
I might walk over to Amy and go and, and show her a video or something and go, hey, what do you think? Uh, and she might come over and go, hey, you know, he's struggling with this. Is it worth it? Those kind of things. Um, what we do do is like if you're a new customer, let's just say you come through the door and you're really excited. Brian and Amy, you know, I've heard a lot about the golf farm and they're going to fix me. We we have conversations prior to ever getting you know them before they hit a golf shot is what's your ambition? What's your interpretation of, you know, this whole golf instruction thing? What are your goals? What are your ambitions? And because we already know it's hard, right? Amy and I know that like any change that we make in here, any golf lesson, any hour is not going to make somebody better. It's, it's literally going to change them. Now down the road, we know that over time patterns can change, but it's not changing in the golf farm in one one outing. Mm -hmm. And that's why continuity is so enormous. And that's why we have, we have a lot of members here because we know that if they spend five, six months with us, they're going to be better golfers from, for a variety of reasons, maybe not even a technical one, but if somebody just comes in for a golf lesson, which they do, and I'm, it's fun to do it. You can, sometimes you can get somebody quite a bit significantly better by something that's pretty simple, but most of the time it, it, it's over, over time, you know, and some people don't have the time or they don't have the, the interest, you know, they kind of like, really work through some things to make change. Cause you kind of fail for, believe me, I'm changing patterns all the time. And some <laughs> horrible. I'm like, that is not a thing. I'm not doing that, <laughs> but, I might, but I'm not afraid. See great players. Like you see Jordan Spieth right now and he's taking these wild practice swings. Right. But he's been killing it. Right. So it's, he's trying to develop a feel that's exaggerated so that when he swings at, you know, some of it might stick. Right. And most people aren't willing to fail to succeed, if that makes sense. And yeah. and we, we just we, we're ambitious about that. Like, hey, don't be afraid, especially in the golf farm. You can shank it, you can top it, you can do a lot of things in here. We can give two shits. <laughs> Truly, because that's if you're close if something really weird happens, you're probably closer to like benefiting yourself down the road. If that makes sense, that's a great. That's a great way to look at it. You mentioned us being golfers and thinking. I, I need to. I need a lesson on not thinking as much on the golf course. That's the. <laughs> I'll have to stop by. Maybe you got an exercise to just shut my brain off for four and a half hours, and uh, my handicap might go down a little bit. Well, we, we could talk to you guys all day about this. We we can't think enough for for your time. We like to end these with something that we we call driver off the deck. So I'll, we'll just kind of go back and forth, and we'll throw these at you, kind of rapid fire questions, uh, starting with Brian and then to Amy. Your favorite golf course in the Portland area. Favorite golf course in the Portland area? Um, if I had my um, my favorite, is probably Pumpkin Ridge, the facility. What about Love you, it. Amy? Yeah, I gotta go with the home track, Oswego Lake Country Club. Cool. Um, that's 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 my spot. We just talked to Matt Lemon with Jones Sports the other day, and he's a member out there at OLCC. Yep, yep, for sure. What about one course, Brian? in Portland, or at least the Portland area, that you don't feel like gets enough credit, kind of flies under the radar, but you think is a pretty good track? In the Portland area, probably Arrowhead out in Malala. Oh. Okay. What about you, Amy? Such a good question. There's so there's so many good ones, but, man, I'm going to go with Stone Creek. Yeah. I like I like it's fun play. Yeah, that's a, both of those are, are good underrated courses. We haven't talked much about Arrowhead on the podcast. They need a little more love. That's a, that's a great track. Uh, uh, if you had one round of golf to play anywhere, where would it be and who would it be with? Ooh. Oh, that's a, it would be with Amy Simonton. And, wow. we'd be, we'd, and I'd 
all over the world, and we'd go straight to Bandon Dunes. Wow. Okay. Amy, do you agree with this dream round? Are you signing up for this too? Sounds kind of cold. So. <laughs> <laughs> and who, who would round out the foursome? So you two, and who are the other two? Oh, that's a really good question. Well, you didn't finish. No, you have, you don't have a foursome. Oh, I don't have a foursome? Yeah. Who's in my foursome? Oh, my gosh. Steph Curry's in my, my Ooh, foursome. That's a good pick. I know it bothers her because I'm a huge Warrior fan. Um, not And I love the Blazers, too. But um, Steph's in that group and probably Michael Jordan. Wow, he's going basketball. Yeah, I'm going basketball. Okay, what about you, Amy? You're kind of like the shortest one in that group. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, a long way. Okay, I'm going with Augusta, and um, I'll throw Brian in there only because he led the Masters, so that's pretty cool. <laughs> that's cool, yeah. That is pretty cool. Um, Got to go Tiger Woods, and wow, my fourth. You know, sometimes people throw in like a sibling or their parent or something like, you guys are just going straight to the top of the pile. Like I, I love play it. That's kind of where I would go, too. I would go that route, too. I- if my mom hears this, she's going to be disappointed. Uh, I definitely wouldn't say I'd play with dirt, so you guys are already <laughs> ahead of the game there. Uh, going to go with Victor Hovland because I have a little crush on him. So oh, we'll okay. I like that. What, what about each of each of your proudest moments as a golfer, as a, as a competitive golfer? Was there a, a moment that you will always remember as pr- probably your proudest moment as a player? Wow, that is a toughie. We're like Jeopardy, uh, man. We we come in hard with the questions. Oh <laughs> yeah, I know. Proudest moment. I think when I won my tournament in nineteen ninety nine, uh it was the week that Payne Stewart went down on the plane and my, my my dad was with me. And we shared some moments there that I could shed a tear or two right now. Yeah. That was my proudest moment in golf probably but not you know i i had a foundation for years and i had what we called the fireside chat and i hosted this event at um abandoned dunes and those were some of my proudest moments too i brought my buddies and we'd play golf for a few days and raise money for children's charities so that's another one but a specific event that would would have been that event with my dad when i won yeah what about you amy yeah um i won the organ amateur at Bandon on the 36th hole of the 36th hole match and um that was probably one of my proudest accomplishments how cool um, is that that's a that's yeah. a club drop moment like i mean that's about as good as it gets for, for an amateur yeah i met i i uh i beat a girl named kendra little and um she's one of the best players to ever ever play at U of O, and um and she was quite a bit, a few years older than me and hit the ball a lot further than me. So it was, it was definitely a proud moment. That's so cool. What about your proudest moment for each of you as a golf teacher, a golf instructor? Well, that's a good one. Oh, that is a good one. I, I, I'm so fortunate because I've had kids do some crazy cool things. I had one yesterday, Carson Berry, that plays for Oregon State. And, you know, you're, you're um, not to dwell too much on, on this subject, but it's such a delicate um, fragile thing that you're you're treading with these really gifted players, you know what I mean? And you're always worried that you said the wrong thing, or maybe you worked on something you didn't really need to work on, or you know you said something that you wish you could take back. And Carson, Oregon State had a chance to finish at the regional and and make it to the NCAA as a team. They were in fifth yesterday and just 
didn't play very well as a team, but Carson got into a playoff yesterday, and we were kind of watching it, and he won a four-man playoff to go as an individual. They were in College Station, and that's my most recent proudest moment. I mean, like, I – these kids, you know, like when they do well, I, it's just it's it's like I'm back in the game. I feel yeah. so so good about that. I'm I'm supporting it in some way. Then you know what I mean? Part, you're you're not just supporting it, but you're a part of it too. Oh God, it's it's so annoying. You should see me. She, I drive Amy crazy because I'm on the web <laughs> looking golf stat. You know, and every you know, um, yeah. yeah. How about you, Amy? I don't know, it's a tough one because I haven't been doing it this as long as you have. But uh, cool, I thought a cool moment for us this year um, was one of our one of our kids won his very first college event for Oregon State, um, a kid named Brandon Iron. That was that was pretty sweet um, as a freshman, very first event. Yeah. Uh, so wh- where can we send our our pot our our, uh, our large podcast audience to go find out more information <laughs> on on the golf farm? Where where should we send them? <laughs> go ahead, Amy. So, yeah, so our website is HenningerGolfFarm.com. We're on Instagram, too, um, Henninger Golf Farm. Um, yeah. Yeah, follow us on social media, yeah. the people that are listening, you know, some of the followers, because we, we throw a lot of information out there you might learn. Okay. Yeah. I, well, I need that, so I'm going to go click that follow button right now because I desperately need yeah. some tips. And I might need to come out. We need to come out there and, and, and see you guys. And I, we can't thank you enough. This was one of the more enjoyable uh, interviews that we've got a chance to do on, on the podcast. And the backstory of your careers and what you're doing out at the golf farm, it, it's an amazing uh, success story here locally. And we always love propping up just great golf stories here in, in the Portland area. So thank you so much for the time hopping on the podcast. And uh, I look forward to coming out and you guys turning my brain off when I'm playing golf, okay? Thank you. You guys were amazing. You are welcome anytime. Well, we talked about, before we brought Brian on, that 1995 Masters, and I had to ask him about that. And I felt bad because I don't know what your, you know, reaction to that would be of your takeaway. Like, if you were in those shoes, and I thought his perception on it was great, but when you're that close to winning a Masters, do do you think with the positive thought of like, how cool was that, that I was the 54 hole leader at the Masters with Ben Crenshaw, or do you think back to, I didn't get the job done on Sunday? And he said, he, you know, obviously wished that he would have played better. But to have a, a local story like that and a guy with a chance to win, I thought he had a good, a good perception on it. But that could go either way when you ask somebody about that. Well, and I think, too, it depends on how they lost. I mean, if you think about like Mito Pereira, if you were to ask him now or even 15 years later, um, hey, Mito, what was that like? losing on the last hole man that must have hurt real bad tell me about that you know that would probably be pretty upsetting to to kind of flash back and think about it that way but for someone like brian who that kind of um gave him confidence that he can play at the highest level and it it made him sort of believe that like yeah i i belong out here and i like the way that he remembers that was to me, like my observation was that it was a positive experience. You know, it's another maybe example of where it could be a, a hard thing to talk about would be to like grill Greg Norman on all the times that he's lost majors on the last day or all his <laughs> right. meltdowns. Um, Cause that kind of like in some ways kind of was a big part of defining his career. Right. And um, but I think for Brian, it was, it was a great experience. It, it's, it's clear to me that he took positive things away from that. Did he want to win? Of course. But I think that when he looks back on it, he remembers a lot of that with good good positive memories well how many people can go to bed at night and say that i was the 54 hole leader at the masters right like that's whether you have a green jacket or not that's an incredibly cool thing to have 
uh, in your golf resume. I know one other thing that stood out to me talking to both of them, and we can't thank them enough for their their time and hopping on. It, the, the the joy that they both seem to have about coaching and how they love working through little intricacies of everybody's swing and how it's, I love how they even kind of use the phrase, like it's a safe place to like come and try stuff. And what does this work? Does this, they don't care if you're talking about hosel rockets, they don't care if you're, you know, duffing the ball or hitting it straight, right. Or popping it up in the air, like the passion that they have to kind of work through the quirks of a golf swing. And then the way he connected it to, Jordan Spieth, who has had to basically reshape his entire swing. And he yeah. now has that weird pre-shot routine where you're like, what the hell is he doing? But he lost it. And now he's back. And I know he didn't make the cut this weekend, but has played incredibly well. So I, to me, the, the passion of teaching, I loved. What, what stood out to you talking to Brian and Amy? Yeah, I think the yin and the yang that they've, they've developed together and the story of how they got connected, like where um, – uh, Amy was a pupil of Brian's and he was doing a um, just at that point, he had kind of started to think about getting into teaching and stuff. And, and Amy was just this really attentive player. Like she was not just a good golfer, but she really thought about the game and really um, kind of had a great mind for, for instruction and how to get better. And so that relationship that they developed early kind of reminds me of you and me, dude, they yin and yang, right? It's like each of them kind of brings a different skill set. <laughs> and so it was fun to hear that that's how the golf farm kind of got started. And how cool is Amy? Like the fact that she's super competitive and feisty and, you know, knows how to win at the high level of uh, amateur golf, but then she can also break it down like you were saying and get into like how how players can improve and kind of the coaching element of it that's not something that always translates i feel like you can be really good at something but your ability to actually transfer that knowledge um, over to someone else and help them improve it that's a whole nother skill set and they both have that in spades and the fact that they found each other and, and have this cool partnership at the golf farm i think is is, is pretty cool there's a lot of great athletes over the years that have not made very good coaches. They can do it themselves, but it's a different thing when you're trying to teach somebody else to do it. And so it was, it was cool to get their insight. And I feel like every week we do these and then I'm like, I learned something new about a company. I didn't know much at all about the golf farm talking to both of them. That's another one that I got to add to the list. I've, have you been out to the golf farm? I've never been out there. Yeah, I have been there once actually. And I mean, they're not under, or they're not overstating the, it's a first class operation with TrackMan and all the cameras and equipment set up. And like, they are, that's a legit operation. And they've, they've coached some of the, like the most elite junior players in this area. I mean, if uh, it's a factory of, of division one college players. So, but it's not just for those folks either. So if some of our listeners are just, you know, golfers like you and me that just want to get better, uh, there's a spot for you out there as well. So I just think that it's a cool little niche that they've carved for themselves. And I, I think it's a fun thing to be a part of. And it's a good, it's just a good thing for Portland, the Portland golf market to say they have that included. So no doubt about it. So go check out the golf farm. If you're working on some little uh, ins and outs of your swing, need a couple of tips here or there, go check them out, man. Great people. Awesome history in the game of golf. And we love highlighting them. And thanks again to Brian and Amy for hopping on the podcast. Well, we, we kind of in the last couple of weeks have started touching on, you know, we, we, a couple episodes ago, we started talking about Chambers Bay a little bit, and that was a, a course that I've never been to. And then last week on the pod, we started because of Ohoopy, we started getting into these mythical golf trips that you want to take. And it kind of sparked the idea. And you thought about this and I, you've done this, I think, far more than I have, which is making me regret not doing it more. But when you live in the Portland area, there are so many great courses that surround you just by a couple of hours. And it's amazing the list that you could come up with on just a YOLO, like, hey, let's go play golf today. 
and we'll be back in time for dinner kind of situation. It just, it feels like the course list is incredibly long for people that live in the Portland area. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking about courses like Chambers Bay or Bandon Dunes or Central Oregon. There's so many courses over there. Courses that are just far enough away that you see them as destinations for us, right? Where, hey, I'm going to go on a buddy's trip. Um, so therefore, I need to plan my round at this course as part of some sort of weekend or week-long trip. But it just got me thinking about Chambers Bay is what the, the first thing I thought of. But then I also was reminded that I've done a couple day trips to Bandon Dunes. Um, a friend of mine had a birthday down there and he just said, hey, we're playing trails at nine o'clock. They came up from Medford and um, <laughs> they're like, do you want to drive down for the day? I mean, and at that point I had friends that lived down there. So it's like I could stay the night, but I was like, I've never, at that point, I'd never done that or even thought of doing that. I'm going to just do a day trip. So I think we teed off at nine o'clock. So I left at, I think four, just after four. So it was an early morning and just drive it, drive down to Bandon and made it to the tee. We played 18 holes at trails, had lunch afterward, left and under, it was no rush, no nothing. And I was home by I think nine o'clock or something like that. It was a long day. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> so long I'm, day, but I'm not trying to say like, oh, this is easy. You should go and do it. It's like four hours and 20 minutes each way. But it never it never occurred to me that you could go play at Bandon Dunes and then sleep in your own bed that night. So it <laughs> so then I just started thinking about like, well, what other courses could you do that with? And then we when we mentioned Chambers Bay, I'm like, well, that's much closer. So then I just started kind of organizing my thoughts and came up with a little list of, of places that you could legitimately go and play as a day trip well and i need to i need to start jotting these down because i just again i haven't done this very much right where most of my day golf is in the area and if i'm doing a golf trip i'll go to abandon or i'll go to a central Oregon and knock some courses off of the, the bucket list but what did you come up with on your list of the ones that stand out for around the portland area that are feasible and doable okay so chambers is the first one that i had on my list and chambers bay from downtown portland to the parking lot at chambers bay is two hours and 20 minutes Obviously, wow. traffic can change that. But if if you leave early in the morning on a Saturday, say, you're probably not going to hit much traffic anyway. So let's just assume that it's two hours and 20 minutes. So there's that, that's one option. The other is Wine Valley, which is really far, three hours and 45 minutes. Okay, that's, and that's more of like a Bandon trip. Well, it's closer than Bandon. So yeah. if I did Bandon, then you can do Wine Valley, which I've never been to Wine Valley. Have you been there? I have not. No, I have not been. I haven't played much golf in Washington and I'm learning this as we okay. do the podcast that I feel like I'm missing out. Yeah, I, I haven't played it either, but I have a lot of friends who have and I've heard it's just awesome. And so um, that so that's on my list as well. Um, I think that you could put Central Oregon on there. Um, yeah. I think that there's obviously a ton of golf options down there. And I think most of the reason that we play golf in central Oregon is because we're there as part of some weekend or maybe with the family or something like that, but you could legitimately drive to bend or somewhere around bend and, and do that as a day trip. Another one that I think is fun that I would also put on there is Tokati, um, yes. East of Eugene, um, which I love playing there, but it's kind of a pass through golf course that I only play like on my way over to central Oregon or on the way back from central Oregon, something like that but that's that's well within that that reasonable drive time and as people are listening to me say this they're probably rolling their eyes like who would want to do that like why <laughs> why would you want to like have a day that's that long well what i think and like now that i'm a father of two little kids like the value of sleeping in your own bed at night like that 
that carries a lot of weight. And so, um, and also the budget part of it, right. Where Mm -hmm. like you can save some money by not staying in a hotel. Like there's sometimes reasons why doing a day trip, even if you have to pack it into a really, really long day, sometimes that's, that's all you got. And so you're going to, like you said, YOLO and make it happen. So those are the ones that popped into my mind. I'd be interested if anyone else has any other ideas of other places that, um, that you could fit golf into one day. Yeah, let us know at Grip City Golf on Twitter. I'm curious what people come up with and what ones we're missing. And it's funny. I think the financial impact of it is big, too, because when you're doing a golf trip, I mean, I, you know, I love going over to Central Oregon and playing every summer, but you're renting a house and that I mean, that adds up. You're adding, you know, five, six hundred bucks to your to your list. And not to mention, you're probably playing more than one round of golf, too. Right. So if you just want to go over, you can get onto most of those courses for a pretty affordable rate. And I know gas is a lot right now, but you're getting over there in a day. You're back in your own bed at night. And it's tough because I got a, a golf trip coming up in a, in a few weeks over in Central Oregon. And it's it's kind of a, a, a weird needle to thread a little bit because you don't want to just say, hey, let's go play, you know, $150 course, $150 course and $150 course. <laughs> on top of renting out a house for a week, because not everybody's coming at it with the same budget. And some people are like, wait a minute, I, now I want to go play golf, but how much is this trip going to cost me? Yeah. Like, you know, what am I getting myself into? So I think the budget aspect of it is cool. And, and having Matt Safino on the episode a couple of weeks ago, he mentioned that of just, he loves being from the Northwest and thinks it's one of the best golf areas in the world because of what we're highlighting is that even if you're just in the Portland or surrounding area, you have the ability to go to Southern Oregon, Central Oregon, up into Washington, drive over to the coast. There's some really fun courses at the, co- at the coast that I know a lot of people have played. So having that ability is really cool for just the day trip. YOLO, let's go, let's go make it happen. So we might have to do that this summer with some Grip City Golf listeners, man. Take a little day trip up to Chambers Bay. I, I got to knock that off the bucket list. Dude, I would love to do that. And, and let's be honest, like trips like yours that you've got coming to Central Oregon, those don't happen without a lot of planning. And uh, a lot of times you got to block out schedules in advance. Whereas if you're only gone for the day and you're sleeping in your own bed at night, those can be arranged on a whim. I mean, like totally. you could go, you could look at the forecast down at Bandon, say, for example, or any at, at Chambers, really anywhere, I guess, would apply weather-wise. But you could look at it three days in advance and say, wow, the weather this weekend looks really good. Let's call the shop and see if they have a tea time for Saturday. And most of the time by then they're going to be booked up if it's in the summer, but maybe they have a tea time that you didn't know about that you can grab. So now all of a sudden you've gone from Wednesday, no plans of playing a great golf course to we're doing this on Saturday that you've put it together in that little short amount of time. And it all goes back to hashtag YOLO, dude. I mean, I mean, how many times, how many times do you like let golf trips pass by or another year goes by and you still haven't played chambers? Like, why, why don't you just check the box? And then your golf trips that you're always going to go on will still happen, but we can just sort of weave this into our golfing life. I think it's a great point. And I love the YOLO attitude. And it's, it's funny because I have people and I know people that have done that, not just necessarily day trips, but maybe a quick one or two day trip down to Bandon and doing it spur of the moment. Because as you know, there people book out so far in advance of Bandon that you'll call them up and be like, Hey, I'm looking for a, you know, a couple of tea times in six months. And they'd be like, sorry, we got nothing. But if you call three weeks ahead of time, they might say, yeah, four groups just canceled because they set those tea times two years ago and life happens and they can't make it anymore. And so you can get those kind of tea times and be like, all right, let's make a run. We'll go down this weekend and go play. There's that ability to go do that on a short notice. We got, when I worked at Bandon, there were a lot of Oregonians who came down from Portland, like um, 
around Christmas time, like that week between Christmas and New Year's was always pretty slow when I was there. And it's, it's probably way busier now, but, um, we would get people if the weather was good because down on the Southern Oregon coast, they call it the banana belt. Like it, they, you get this like random days in December or like late December where it's just, you'd think it was really crappy weather, but you can get like low sixties and sunshine. And I'm not even kidding you. And I was down there for once, like just right around that time for um, right after Christmas. And I just like played 36 because it was 63 degrees and I was in shorts at Bandon in December. And there's nobody there because it's December and it's, you know, people think, oh, it's going to be bad weather. And also like just travel around that time for a trip like Bandon Dunes is, is just a lot slower. Right. Um, It's not as much like people are home with their families around that time of year. So I think the point is, is that cool golf experiences can be arranged on short notice and whether it's a one or two day trip to Bandon at the, after Christmas, or if it's just a, a Saturday in July, because you called on Wednesday and they happen to have a tea time, whatever it is, like if you just sort of reach out a little bit, stretch yourself a little bit in terms of getting up early, getting on the road. I mean, you can get on the road early in the morning and listen to a golf podcast, right? And all of a sudden you're killing time, you're on the road and you're, you're on the way to go play golf. Like what a great way to start the day. I love it. YOLO is the attitude. It's a great mindset to have. And that's awesome. There's day trips to uh, send us yours at Grip City Golf on Twitter. If there's any courses that we're forgetting, I'm sure there's a ton. Yeah, there's got to be places that we're not thinking of that people have either thought about doing a day trip to or have done. And it was a great experience. We'd love to hear it. So let's close out this week. Speaking of listeners and engagement on Twitter, we got some good stuff that I wanted to get to that I, I forgot to last week. Uh, first off, shout out to Taylor, who is a, a great listener of the podcast, and uh, he, he fires us up with questions every single week. So I didn't get to these last week, and I'm, I'll throw these at you. Um, and there's a handful of them. He, he had a tweet with like 17 questions in it. So I'm, I'm going rapid fire, lightning round, driver off the deck with Eric Peterson. Uh, other than the majors, what tournament do you look forward to most year in and year out? I mean, the easy answer would be the Players Championship. They call that the fifth major, but I, I've been to that several times. It's really fun. Um, I, I mean, the tournament that I enjoy or some of the ones I enjoy watching the most, uh, Bay Hill, um, I really like that one. I think the Memorial Tournament is always really good. The, and I, I feel like Torrey Pines is, is another one that I really enjoy watching because to me that just feels like the first event that like where a lot of the top players show up and play. And then I, th- I would also throw in Kapalua, the, the first yeah. event of the calendar year, because then you turn that on and the weather's crappy and you just look at like perfect blue skies and people are playing golf and you're like, okay, the, at least there's, there's golf being played somewhere. So th- that would be my list. What about you? That, that's pretty good. I, I would say the only one that you didn't mention that I would mention is the waste management. I, I love the waste management and the crowd atmosphere. And this year with a couple of guys getting aces and everybody throwing their beers onto the course, like, that one was an all-timer for me. So the waste management is one I look forward to. And then the other obvious answer, and this is kind of cheating, but I'm going to do it anyways, is Ryder Cup or President's Cup years. I mean, obviously, that's the biggest thing, it, yeah. you know, having a Ryder Cup. And we got the President's Cup coming up this year. So those ones are on there for me. Uh, he also asked, Korea has night golf. Would you be interested in golfing under the lights? Yeah. Or, I mean, I've played glow-in-the-dark golf before. Have you? Have you? I've never done the glow-in-the-dark ball thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that under the lights would be fun. There's actually, yeah, there's a couple places that I'm not sure where you can do that. Um, I don't think there's anywhere like near Portland that has something like that. Maybe there is that we don't know about, but I, I'm all for it, man. Why not? 
to go play some night golf, dude. I remember partying at uh, East Moreland as a high school kid, and there'd occasionally you'd be out there on a Friday night at midnight, and there'd occasionally be this the solo guy walking through a high school party and a bunch of kegs out there, and he would have his glow in the dark ball, and everybody would get quiet and watch him play through. <laughs> So shout out to East Moreland. I didn't mean to trash your course in high school, but we, we still love you. Uh, but th- that's the only night golf experience I think I have. And there were fun moments back in the day. Um, let's see here. What uh, You have a friend that doesn't golf. What is your strategy to ensure that they have a good time on their first outing? I would say alcohol. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and probably just incorporating some, like playing a scramble or something. I, I like playing scrambles. Like, I, I just think it's, it's so approachable. It's fun. Everybody's kind of involved in the same, in the same task. You know, you're, it's, it's, everything's a team effort. There's something about scramble golf that I, I just think it's, there should be more of it. You know, I think that we're so enamored of our, our score and our handicap that people always want to play their own ball. And I, I, I'm for that as well, but I just think, scrambles are really fun or, or just some sort of like change the format of the, of the, the round so that there's some sort of game that kind of includes everybody. That's what I would do. I'm with you on that. I, scrambles to me are underrated. I, they're a lot of fun to play in and it's, it's not pressure situations unless you're the fourth guy driving the ball and you have three terrible tee shots. But so that's kind of fun to like have that throughout the course of a round, but the team aspect of it, I, I always enjoy. I'm with you. A scramble would be a great way. And then they don't feel like you're not, you know, if they hit a ball 10 feet, it's like, dude, go play where my tee yeah. shot is. You don't need, you know, we're not keeping score for you. Yeah. And go get me a fresh beer while you're at it. Yeah. And crack a cold one. And that'll have the, you know, make sure the sun's out and they're going to have a great time. The, the and, other funny thing about scrambles and where there can be a lot of pressure is when somebody hits it close to like, let's say six feet or something. And it's like, we're, we're pretty sure we're going to make this putt, but we still got to putt it out. Right. And, and the first three guys go up there and shove it. And then all of a sudden, like, all right, uh, the fourth guy, you actually have to make this dude. It's like, Oh man, this is a lot now of there's some pressure on you. Yeah. It's, it's fun. It's a fun way to play where it's not your score and your handicap that's on the line, but there's team pressure and camaraderie. I'm with you. Scrambles are great. Last one from Taylor. He said, uh, and this might be the answer to the question. What is your favorite golf tournament format to play in? for fun, uh, not for money. I mean, if I, well, I mean, if, if it's, if the purpose of playing is to include everyone and play with a wide range of, of abilities, then yeah, scramble for sure. My favorite format, if I'm playing in a serious tournament would be a best ball. Um, I just think that that way you get to play your own ball, but you feel like if you hit a bad shot, you still got a partner who can bail you out. I think that that's just a good blend between playing by playing your own ball, playing by yourself and a scramble. A good middle ground is a best ball. I'll tell you the one I'd like the least that is alternate shot. Have you ever played in, a, in an oh, alternate, alternate shot tournament? Alternate shot is the absolute worst. It is so hard. <laughs> and like for, for listeners who have ever played in an alternate shot tournament that you probably know, like the, the cardinal rule with alternate shot is you can never say sorry, like, because then they would just get out of hand. Right. Because every, every time you hit a, anything worse than a good shot, you'd be like, Oh, sorry, man, you, you got this. My bad. <laughs> you so go hit from behind that tree. <laughs> yeah. So you have to, you have to follow that rule 
um, for sure. But even if you do, it's so hard because you, you can't get into a rhythm, even though you're not saying sorry, you still kind of feel bad that you just hit it behind a tree and now he has to bail out and then you get to hit the shot that's now back out in the clear. Uh, so it's just a total mind F to me. Like it's just alternate shot is the hardest. I don't want to say it's the worst, but it's definitely the hardest. I'm with you 100% on that. If I ever get played, asked to play in an alternate shot, it's an immediate no for me uh, because it's just that that's the kind of pressure I can deal with pressure of my own golf game. If I hit a bad shot, I got to go bail myself out, but hitting a bad shot and knowing you're setting somebody else up in a bad situation. No, I don't want to be that. That's way too much pressure for me. I'm out on that. I love, you know, one of the, I'll go play in a tournament with some buddies every year and we play uh, basically it's a, a teams of two and we play a high low game. And so it's essentially, you know, for those who don't know, the high scores match and the low scores match. And so there's two points available on every hole. And I've always enjoyed doing that because there's not pressure on you if you're a lot, you know, a high handicap guy, because you just have to beat the other high handicap guy on the other team. But if you happen to par a hole, maybe you beat the low handicap and you win the low point for that hole. So I've, I've always found that kind of to be a fun way where not only is there not a ton of pressure because you could have a blow up, but your other teammates having a great hole. So they win the low, but you lose the high. So it's just a wash. Um, it's just kind of a fun back and forth. And with two points available on every hole, things can swing and change quickly where they can stack up and you can make comebacks and all that. So I've always enjoyed low high games that I played over the years. Yeah, for sure. And then you can also put bonus points in there for like an extra point. If you make a birdie or um, get, totally. a, get up and down from the sand or something, totally. the more complex the games get, the more I'm like, whoever's keeping score, that's like, if you want to make the game as complicated as you want, have at it. I'm, I'm all on board. But if I have to keep track of all this stuff, I like to keep it much more simple. <laughs> Making like 37 little marks on a scorecard. And okay, so, you know, you get that point and you get that point and I get this point. And if somebody wants to take that on, God love them, but it's not going to be me. <laughs> not going to be. I got a buddy who does that for golf trips. He'll get a spreadsheet going and it's like, dude, you're a great friend to have. Man. Yeah, I appreciate totally. this because I am not putting that time and effort into this. Uh, last one. And this came from John. He sent us a DM and uh, we appreciate people reaching out and saying they enjoy the pod. He said, uh, two courses I can't believe you haven't mentioned yet. Oh, talk about your YOLO day trips. Elk Ridge. We haven't mentioned Elk Ridge. That's a great day trip. Wow. And it that Elk Ridge kind of flies under the radar. I've played there once and it's, it's awesome, dude. I mean, it, it really is awesome. I'm actually, now that we're talking about it, I'm surprised that we haven't talked about it. Um, and I'm surprised it doesn't get more attention. We should probably do a, have a team offsite out there, dirt and go play Ooh, it. <laughs> a little live show at Elk Ridge, take some listeners Something. out. Hey, come on, let's go out to Elk. And that's, that's what about a 45 minute drive, hour drive. That's short. Yeah. One. You go across the hood river bridge. So I don't know, depending on traffic, maybe it's like an hour, maybe a little more. Yeah. That's Elk Ridge. Yeah. Shout out to John for mentioning that we have not brought up Elk Ridge. He also said, we have not mentioned yet Glendevere. And he said the West course is the best 18 holes for a beginner to start out on. That is 100% true. And Glendevere is an underrated course in the area, especially now they built that Von Ebert's uh, there is kind of their clubhouse dinner place. It's got a great brewery, great food. Yeah. And you've got two different 36, you know, 36 holes, but you know, one side being a little simpler and easier and open and shorter that whether you're a good or bad golfer, it's fun to go play like hell for low handicaps, man, go see how low you can go on an easier course. And then they have a tougher side that's a little bit tighter and more trees in that. I, Glendavir is up a, and down too. The, a little more up and down, super hilly. But yeah, that's John. Thanks for that because we have not mentioned Glendavir, dude. We, we were missing out on that one. Yeah, 
I totally agree. And it's, it's super easy to get to, um, Tetons, you know, you and I have talked about like courses being approachable from a cost standpoint and Glendivere certainly fits that bill. Yeah. I think that I've played there a lot actually. Um, and I, I've always had fun playing there and that restaurant there is Von Ebert's a brewery. Von Ebert's. Yeah. The yeah. brewery company. Yeah. That's a, a great spot too. In fact, you know, we haven't really mentioned them as in our quest to find the best 19th holes in Portland. They should probably Ooh, be in that. That's not a bad call. The other question we have to ask at some point on the podcast, we don't have the time for it now is what course has the best hot dog. Cause I have a, I have like a ranking in my head of the best local area hot dogs. And it's, I got a, I got a good pecking order going and I want to see where listeners are at on that one. Give us a teaser teaser on that. What's, what's one that is in the conversation. I, in my, in my humble opinion, I think the best golf course hot dog is Tri Mountain. Wow. I think Tri Mountain has, it, it, when you go, it, you know, it's, it's one of those courses it's a little bit up there in Washington. Obviously I love playing Tri Mountain. It's fun. It, it, the, they, they cut it, they slice it open. It's grilled. You can tell they took their time with it. It's not like a boiled water hot dog with yeah. a bad bun. There's some love and care that goes, there's some TLC that goes into that hot dog. And I'm, I would challenge any listener, if you can find a better golf course hot dog than Tri Mountain, fire away. Cause I don't think you can find it. Anytime you split it open and put it on the grill and kind of give it that little crispy oh, on the outside, baby. that's doing it right. Now we're talking, man. Now we're talking. Well, that will do it. And episode seven of the Grip City Golf Podcast. I hope this didn't sound terrible. We did it on Zoom. So I apologize if the audio is bad. We're just trying something new this week to see if it works out. And uh, a shout out that I will be out on Saturday. I'm getting dragged out there to go play in the uh, o- the Northwest Golf Guys event at OGA. I haven't played OGA yet this year. Sweet. And the weather's going to be terrible, but I'm still looking forward to getting my first Northwest Golf Guys event in this year. Who are you playing with? Do you know yet? Playing with some in-laws. I got a little uh, foursome with some in-laws, and so cool. we're going down there. It sounds like the weather's going to be bad, but it's fun to play OGA any time of the year. And so yeah, I'm good deal. For that one. So cool. if you're down at OGA on Saturday, come find me. I'm in the morning flight at 730. Come say what up. And uh, that will do it, man. Thanks again to Brian Henninger. And uh, Amy uh, Simonton for hopping on the podcast from the golf farm. Go check them out. They do great stuff for any level of local golfer and uh, awesome local company. And I hope you enjoyed that podcast. Uh, Eric, it was great looking at you over Zoom, buddy. I enjoyed it. Yeah, bro. Yeah, thanks a lot, man. We'll see you soon. All right. Make sure to tune in to Eric tomorrow, noon to three on 1080 The Fan. And uh, hey, go low, everybody. Thanks for listening. Again, again. But I tell you this, my friends, I'm still around. I hit it hard, man. So far.